and thanks for tuning into episode 48 of the Eyes Free Sports podcast. This is your host, Greg Lindbergh. Here on this edition of Eyes Free Sports, we are chatting with a gentleman uh, who has a very fascinating life story and uh, has been very involved in the North American Association of Blind Sportsmen. And if you didn't think the blind and visually impaired could go hunting, fishing, and uh, truly enjoy the outdoors like our sighted peers out there, uh, this episode will definitely make you think again. So let's get rolling now here with episode 48. Okay, so joining me on this episode of the podcast is Tom Fisher, and Tom is very involved with the North American Association of Blind Sportsmen. Tom, welcome to Eyes Free Sports. Hey, thanks, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Really excited about this. I know we did connect uh, for an ACB uh, virtual event uh, a few months ago. Yeah, that was exciting. Definitely. Yeah. Really like what uh, NAABS is doing and, and really excited to let everyone else know about it. Awesome. For sure. So first off, Tom, just give us kind of a personal bio about yourself, your, where you were born, your early years and kind of your childhood. Sure. Um, to start out, my name is, like you said, Tom Fisher. And uh, I was born in 1980. I'm 41 years old. Uh, I grew up in Des Moines, Washington, and I have a younger sister and she's two years younger than me. And I grew up playing baseball and going outside, playing, being a kind of a rough kid. You know, I broke bones and (laughs) (laughs) uh, got the grass stains and um, did did I I developed uh, diabetes uh, between the ages of six and seven. And, uh, it was type one diabetes and that, you know, that'll play in later on in the podcast. We'll talk about that, but I spent the better part of my, what do you call developmental years, I guess, in grade school, learning how to take care of diabetes alongside of playing sports and being active and, you know, always having to come home to check your blood sugar before the street lights came on, which nobody wants to do. Right. so so, yeah i grew up uh, in des moines and then um about 10th grade i moved to not too far away from des moines a city called kent and i went i lived there for two years with my mom and dad and sister uh went to my sophomore and uh junior year of high school at kent meridian high school and uh we moved again to auburn in the Auburn area, which is not that far from Kent. So all of this is like within, you know, a 30 mile radius. Okay. Um, got you. Yeah. And then I, so I graduated, uh, my senior year from Auburn Riverside high school and we were the first graduating class from that school was brand new when I went there. Uh, Very cool. Yeah, it was pretty neat. Um, I graduated in 1998 and, uh, pretty much went directly to work, uh, right after high school. And and during high school, I had work too, but, uh, right after high school, went into a full-time, uh, labor type job, you know, kind of better than getting your pay as a teenager, which there's nothing against that. It's just you, when you can work full-time and get to a job that, you know, you can spend a complete eight hour day there. It helps to make some money. Right. For sure. Yeah. Well, I drove a, a, 1983 Ford F-250 and it had a 
460 cubic inch motor in it. And <laughs> at that time, you know, fuel was only about 99 cents a gallon and I was still putting over 200 bucks a month into that thing. So, um, wow. need, needless to say, I had a lead foot and I had to have a job to cover that. <laughs> <laughs> Good way to put it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I grew up a very close knit family for the most part. I have a big extended family. I have, uh, six aunts and uncles. Oh, wow. Yeah collectively and uh, each of them has two kids at least so there's uh you know several cousins and um we all grew up pretty much together um again like i said pretty tight-knit and it was your typical you know i don't want to say run-of-the-mill because that makes it sound bad but it was some someplace between the 1950s picturesque you know, good humor, ice cream truck delivery kind of neighborhood and <laughs> the early 80s, if that makes any sense. Gotcha. Very interesting analogy. <laughs> I tend to do that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I appreciate that. That's that makes it interesting. <laughs> I played baseball all throughout high school um, and I actually played on a team with my cousin. So we were uh, teammates for a long, long time was active all through my growing up years. Like I said, when I was young, um, it was really hard to deal with the diabetes and be an active teenager because back then, you know, diabetes, the way you take care of it now has changed so much as to way we took care of it when in the eighties and the early nineties, you know, everything is so different. No um, doubt. Yeah. I actually have a brother who's type one diabetic as well was diagnosed at 14 and, you know, certainly saw the, the challenges he went through, I'm sure, much like you as well. Just at that age, dealing with a condition like that, it's it's tough for anybody, but especially a younger person. It, it very much is, you know. And, you know, one of the things I like to tell people is uh, that later on, you know, I'll give my email address and stuff. But I love to talk to young kids, you know, young kids meaning somebody that's going to understand what I'm talking about their teenage years, you know, who's cause I rebelled really bad in my teenage years with diabetes. And since I went blind, I feel like I need to help anybody and everybody I can. So I talk to people and because my blindness is a factor from diabetes. And so this all ties together that way, you know, I would sneak when I was a kid, I would sneak a candy here or there. And sometimes you don't think that it's a big deal, but, as you grow older, you know, your body doesn't heal as well. Um, and the more you do that, the more damage you cause to yourself. Well, I, you know, like any teenager, I rebelled against that amongst everything else. Right. So fast forward to my twenties, didn't really have any problems with diabetes. I had a couple of low blood sugars, which can be pretty scary. Uh, but they got all taken care of and I got married early. Uh, I was 21 and my ex-wife, she was 20. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we got married very early, um, was married for 15 years in that 15 years. I had my oldest daughter. Her name is Raina and my youngest daughter, whose name is Aubrey. So juggling being a father, being married, uh, having diabetes and working a full-time job was kind of busy all the time, you know? Um, For sure. Yeah. And so some things went awry health-wise, 
in between being married and dealing with work and, you know, and I'm not going to lie to you. The, the marriage didn't last. We were married for 15 years and um, we got separated. Uh, it was shortly thereafter when we split up. Uh, my oldest daughter came to live with me. Uh, my youngest daughter lives with her mother, which is well and good. It's all fine. Um, the breakup wasn't great, you know, but we're on very amicable terms now. We um, like to tell people that we are much better as co-parents than we were uh, as a married couple. Um, hmm. I now am married to a wonderful woman. Her name is Kirsten. And she has a daughter who is 21, just turned 21 this year. So I have my wife at home. I have a 21-year-old daughter, 18 and 15, and I have a dog. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, uh, and my wife and I, uh, we have a three-year anniversary coming up on September 9th. And um, when her and I got together was in 2016, that was the year that I went blind. So our kind of first date was, well, let me, let me. So we, we've known each other since 1998. Hmm. I forgot to mention that I was on a country line dance team as a older teenager and into my twenties. And so she was on the same country line dance team and uh, we met way back then. And then kind of everybody kind of went their separate ways. Well, that whole group that I hung out with is all back together for the most part. But my wife, Kirsten, our first date was to a um, wedding of a friend of our son. And it was probably two days after that in August, uh, my eye pressure on my right eye skyrocketed from what it's supposed to be, I believe is between uh, 11 and 20 pounds or 11 and 18 pounds or excuse me, pounds. I, I don't know exactly how they measure that. So forgive me, sure. but uh, no the pressure problem. was at uh, 70 even. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. So I'm not a small guy, you know, I'm 300 pounds and I'm six foot and I was curled up in a one person chair as small as I could get because I just couldn't stand up. The pain was so immense that uh, I had no idea what was going on and where I was. I lost a complete week, uh, because the pain was so bad that I had, I, I didn't know where I was for a week. And, you know, Kirsten, she never even batted an eyelash at the problems coming up. She has never faltered in any way dealing with my diabetes and me going blind, you know, at the age of 36, it's been a really rough go, you know, not like other people, you know, I don't, I'm not trying to say that my life is special and I've done extraordinary things with my blindness. I just want people to realize that, you know, if you're having a hard time dealing with it, that there is always an option and you can always get out and get your life back and get out there and do something. And uh, she's been pivotal in this battle for me. Sure. That's great advice. And uh, it's another thing I like to say, you know, I, I, my emails will be out there and it's another thing I like to give people advice. I'm not a doctor. I, I don't have a PhD. I don't have an MD. I, I don't, uh, I never went to college, but there is something to be said for um, experience over education in certain aspects of the world. And 
I would like to share my story with anybody. If it could help anybody feel better, you know, even if I can just help one person, then I've done my job. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yes, sir. And then, so just in terms of, uh, you know, your visual impairment a little more specifically, so you had pretty normal vision then for, for most of your life up until that point? I did. I had 20-20 vision uh, up until about 2015. Um, hmm. I had a detached retina on my left eye. And so I had to have several different surgeries. Um, I, I don't know if you've ever talked to anybody like that, but I had to be face down. Uh, for, I think it was like 21 days. I laid face down for 24 hours a day, only being able to be up to use the restroom or eat. I could be up for 15 minutes out of every hour. Uh, Mm. yeah. So I laid on a massage table with one of those holes cut out for your head for, uh, three weeks in the dining room and people had to walk around me. And that was very much a low point in my life. Um, sure you know, it ties into this all ties into, uh, you know, um, 80% of the diabetes, uh, not all the blame goes there. You know, uh, it's not even the diabetes fault. It's, I didn't do what I was supposed to do when I was a kid. Uh, but my family, there's a gene in our family and nobody knows what it is or where it came from. Uh, but a lot of the people in my family have very poor eyes. Uh, whether it's a vision Hmm. or um, stability, whatever it might be, the eyes just aren't the strongest uh, thing in my family. I have several family members uh, in our family tree that have prosthetic eyes on one side or the other. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. So I haven't told a lot of people what I'm about to tell you. And I believe in being honest, you know, and, and you and I are doing this podcast and Uh, I want people to realize, you know, uh, there was a point where I wondered what it was like if I just wasn't around, you know, and I'm not ashamed of that. It's a battle that I had to deal with internally on my own. You know, Uh, I I had to get right with myself before I could make anything right around me and laying face down on that table. You go through a lot of stuff, you know, you you ride every kind of emotion and People are trying to make you feel good and go out of their way to help you. And it's, I had a detached retina back in 2015 in my left eye. I still have silicone oil in that eye to this day. And I have, I'll say some usable vision in that eye, but I, in the central part of my vision is very blurry. If I look to the left or to the right, I can kind of make out in the periphery what's going on, but it's like looking through, and I'm sure some of the listeners know exactly what I'm talking about, but it's like looking through a sheen of uh, Vaseline on a clean plate, plane of glass. And that's the best way I could describe it. I see. I see. So both eyes are kind of different then as far as the the visual level. Yeah. So I have a prosthesis on my right side. Um, when that eye pressure went up to 70, they tried to put in an artificial drain in the back of the eye to try to help some of the pressure release, uh, that failed miserably, uh, no fault to the doctor. It just didn't work out. Uh, the internal structure of the eye was compromised at that point. And it had a couple of weeks after that, it had started to collapse and cause me an immense amount of pain. I, I don't even know how to describe it. It was the worst thing I've ever felt. And Mm -hmm. like I said, I'm not a small guy. It it doubled me over, you know, when you get those shocking pains. So 
in 2018, I believe it was just a month before. So my wife and I got married in 2018, my current wife, Kirsten, and uh, I got to wear an eye patch in my picture. And I'm kind of a redneck kind of person. You know, I, I, I wear jeans and T-shirts and cowboy hats. And so I kind of look like John Wayne, which was kind of cool. Um, (laughs) but they removed that eye a month before I was getting married. And again, I had to, I, I had sat my wife down and I told her, I said, you know, you didn't sign up for this. This isn't what we had in mind. And, uh, her words to me, and I quote were, I'm marrying you and whatever comes with that we'll deal with along the way. And like I said before, she has never wavered in any way or another, um, which is incredible to say for somebody to be that much of a stronghold for you and uh, pivotal in keeping your hopes up and keeping, you know, the drive alive to keep going. Absolutely. Yeah. I've come across numerous uh, individuals uh, whose spouses have left you know, when the person becomes blind or acquires some type of disability. And uh, so that that definitely says a lot about her, no question. That was uh, the reason my marriage ended the first one was I was Mm -hmm. told that I don't want to uh, deal with the blindness and the diabetes. You know, there was other things that Mm -hmm. were involved, but that was a big one. Right. You know, and... And I'll touch on it later on, but uh, Lance, who is the founder and president of NABS, the North American Association of Blind Sportsmen, he lost an entire friends group uh, when he went blind. And, you know, we'll Mm. get into it, but NABS was born out of necessity uh, rather than, you know, an opportunity. So um, interesting. Yeah. So, but back to my wife and I, we got married. We have our uh, third anniversary coming up. We got married in a local saloon. Um, really cool place. It's kind of, I believe it was built in the 60s or 70s and it looks the way it did when they built it. Very cool. Yeah. And they catered the whole thing. We had a wedding on, uh, it was on a Sunday and it was a brunch wedding. So we got married around noon, I believe. I like, don't quote me on that. And Kirsten, if you're listening to this, I apologize. Um, but we had a brunch wedding so we they catered the whole thing for us and it was crepes and pancakes and eggs and sausage and it was very low-key but very much our wheelhouse if you will right right very neat and very unique (laughs) yeah so we fast forward i went to the uh, occupation training center in seattle the otc to learn my blind skills i fought very, very hard to, you know, you only have to type 25 words a minute with an 80% uh, correction rate to be able to get into that school. And I was a hunt and pet kind of person, uh, for lack of a better way to say it, computers really, (laughs) um, petrified me. I didn't know anything about them except for the fact that they were expensive. And if you broke one, that was expensive too. And so, (laughs) yep. Um, I put, there was probably a year went by that I put so much pressure on myself to take this test. And I probably took it a dozen times. Um, mm. And I, the pressure was more about me learning my skills and trying to get back out in the workforce or do something where I feel like I'm, co- like I'm contributing to society. I'm not the person 
And you'll find out a lot of the people that are in our organization, our nonprofit, we're not the people that sit around and collect a paycheck. You know, we feel like we want to earn the things we are doing and the accolades we get and the awards that may come up. You know, we want to earn this stuff. We don't want to be looked at side-eyed by people and snickered at because you may not know it, but we can hear you. Great point. Yeah, it very much is. So I went through my training there, did everything I needed to do. And I got, I went through the computer program, which was probably the second hardest thing for me to do. Uh, the first hardest, of course, was Braille because I wasn't a great reader to begin with. You know, I wasn't the guy that sat down and read books or did anything like that. You know, I read the hunting and fishing magazines and things like that, but I never would sit down with, you know, and read a novel or anything like that. Right. So all of that was very foreign to me, really. So when I got into the class, you know, not only did I not really enjoy reading, but I had to do it by feel. And uh, I'll just come out and say it. That sucked. You know, um, <laughs> the best two words yeah. I read in that Braille book was the end, you know, Um <laughs> It, it was just one of those things that that and computers were the most difficult thing that I ever had to do there at the school. Um, I excelled at the cooking because I I've enjoyed cooking my entire life. Um, and it's a release for me. I even got to teach some cooking classes when the teacher would be out and I got to do some seminars uh, with the folks at the OTC students and staff alike. And the seminars would consist of, and some people probably already know, but they would consist of anything and everything pertaining to blindness, whether it's how you feel, how somebody reacted to you uh, at the grocery store, um, what you ran into that day, kind of whatever it was. And so I being able to speak in front of people. And I like to tell people that I talk very plainly. I don't, uh, I don't use big words mostly cause I don't know them and I don't want to sound like an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I try to talk on a very personal level with everybody. And, um, I, I really got to connect with several of the students there and we all keep in touch to this day, but doing the seminar and realizing that there is people in the same boat as I was dealing with blindness and feeling like life is over and uh, dealing with how am I going to do this? You know, how am I going to make money? How am I going to support my kids? How? And uh, so the OTC was a stepping stone for me. And it was the very basis that, that, that I lay all of my bricks for my life. That's the foundation that I have for building this new life as a blind person. Um, Lance Mathena, who is the founder and president of NABS, as we call it, the North American Association of Blind Sportsmen, uh, he came and did a seminar and talked about his uh, nonprofit and what he wants to do and what he wants to have blind people do. And of course, you know, being an outdoor guy myself, I was hook, line, and sinker. He wanted to take people out to um, they call it here, they call it the Conconelli Reservoir. It's on the, it's over in the Okanagan uh, National Forest area hmm. in Okanagan County, Washington. And we did an overnight trip. Um, I say we because I'm involved. Lance planned this overnight trip uh, for 16 blind folks and several volunteers to come along and help out with anything and everything that needed to be. There was several different guides that came over to the lake with their boats and, and volunteered their time. 
Um, and they even cooked everybody a really great dinner. Uh, oh, wow. And so, yeah, so it was, and it was, it was really cool because they put up all the tents and everything. It was the big wall hunting style tents, um, big canvas tents, heavy duty, withstand the rain, the wind. You could sip, sleep in those in the dead of winter and you wouldn't even know it. They have a stove, a uh, wood stove inside of them. So we, everybody got to sleep in a tent and get up the next morning, uh, bright and early before the dawn and go out and catch fish all day long. <laughs> very cool. That's, yeah. that's awesome. Yeah, it was very cool. And that's what really turned me on is to see my classmates, to see the people that I hung out with and my classmates that were beaten down by their issues and beaten down by just trying to make life work, you know, to see them lose track of all that and kind of get lost in the moment and be happy about what they're doing. Um, one of the fellows that was there, he had never been on a boat in his life. He's never been fishing in his life. He's a, I think he was 28 at that time. Hmm. And uh, so we took him on his first fishing trip and he's been on a couple fishing trips since, but seeing the people there light up and hearing their smiles and listening to the laughter and listening to the camaraderie that's going on in the camp that lit a fire inside of me that I thought that I really had lost with my love for the outdoors because other than going camping to a familiar place where I've been a hundred thousand times sighted, uh, I didn't do much outside of my comfort zone at that point. Right. Uh, you know, and so doing that really struck a match inside of me and that fire burns really hot right now. And that's what drives me on a day-to-day experience. And we talked about this uh, before we started doing the show that I like to do what I call crush my comfort zone. Right. So, um, and that's what I tell people is nabs can help you crush your comfort zone. A lot of people like to be comfortable in their day-to-day life. I like to push the limits because I like to feel like I'm living, you know, (laughs) for sure. Yeah. That's a, yeah, that's a great outlook. And like you said, so many people are walking around regardless of their situation or disability and don't try new things. You know, they're just comfortable with how things are and that's it. And they're going to go along their lives, you know, as such. That's the general population. I mean, not just with blind folks and like disabilities, you said, but everybody. For sure. Nobody wants to push the limit. You know, there's very few of us out there that like to do that. But I think there's people out there that like to do it. They just need that catalyst to help them get over that, that hump of, oh, my gosh, I'm so afraid, you know, because you know, um, the fear aspect is is huge. Y- you know? Yeah. And I. I had that because I, I love to drive before uh, I forgot to tell you that I was working in a can plant, making cans for Coca-Cola, uh, like Safeway bottling places like that. Um, hmm. And uh, I was working what they call the washer, which washes all the oils and coolant off of the cans when they get punched out. So when a can gets punched out, it's out of it's It's like a four ton roll of aluminum and they have a machine that punches these. They look like, oversized tuna cans, if you will. They're about that same, I don't know, what is that? Three or four inches around with about an inch deep. And uh, you get a soda can out of something like that. It goes through machines and then you have to cool it down. And so I used the the machine called the washer that cleaned all that stuff off there and put a, a surface on the can that made them mobile to go through the manufacturing line, the production lines. Hmm. 
Um, I also handled the wastewater that went out of the building. It had to be correct for the city that I was working in. And we used chemicals to treat our wastewater when the city used biologicals. And so if the water was wrong, we could get in big trouble sending it out to uh, the company or excuse me, sending it out to the city uh, with the wrong pH balance. Uh, but before I was working there, I was a tow truck driver. So I've been outside basically working almost my entire life. Uh, I, I bring that up because the first thing I thought I thought of when I went blind was I can't drive anymore. And for a lot of people that have gone from sighted to blind, that seems to be one of the biggest hurdles. Your independence just gets swiped out from underneath you, you know, but being involved with NABs and having the attitude that I can do this. These people that are around me can do this. I need to show the world that we're people like we are a functioning part of society and we really can get out and do what sighted people do. Uh, we just have to do it a little bit different. Like, yeah. Great perspective. Great way to, to put that. Yeah. And, and that actually, that line is in our TV show, which is called Adaptive Pursuits TV. And uh, we're going to have it. Uh, I believe it's going to be on the Sportsman's Channel again, starting in January. Uh, we have one season under our belt already. I believe that people can find it. I don't know for sure, but I believe that people can find it on, I think, Hulu, the streaming app. Hmm. And if you go to the Sportsman's Channel, like on uh, uh, on demand, I think you can find it there as well. Um, I'm not 100% sure what they've done with that so far. I'm kind of not involved with that portion of it. But we are going to make it available for everybody here in the near future. Very cool. And once again, you know, raising awareness about adaptive sports on a mainstream platform. Really can't beat that that opportunity. No, and it's the the lives that we've changed. I'm talking sighted folks right now the the lives that we have touched showing folks that we can go out and we can go hunting and we can go fishing and we can do like i said we can do everything you can do we just got to do it a little bit different it really brings to light a side of people that maybe not a lot of folks get to see you know um some people are afraid of it we talked about that a little bit earlier some uh blindness and lance told me this is that blindness makes people realize their own mortality. And I don't think I've ever had truer words spoken to me in my entire life. For sure. Yeah. I mean, that's just kind of a strange way to look at it, but it is a hundred percent the truth because most people, and I was one of them, I did not know any blind folks, not because I didn't want to, but I didn't know any blind folks in my sighted life. I just didn't, I, I didn't think anything about it. I just never did you know, and going from sighted to blind, I've been told by several people who've been born blind, they think it's harder. I don't know that I agree with that, but I've been told both ways. They think it's harder because we know what the world looks like as people who have a tiny bit of usable vision or have come from a sighted background, you know what the world looks like. So when you go blind, you know exactly what you're missing. Right. But I also was working with a gentleman who came to the OTC and he had never even stood next to a car or felt the dimensions of a car before or knows what, you know, anything in the outside world really looked like. And hmm. I struggled with descriptions for a little while until I went, you know, 
he's very tactile. Let's take him over to a car. I had my wife bring her car over and he basically ran his hands up and down the car and kind of got a mental image of what it may look like. You know, it's just an adaptive way to look at life, you know, again, and that's again, the title of the show, adaptive pursuits, you know, we're, we're adapting our pursuit to catch that animal and, and feed our families. Exactly. Yep. And then, so just, uh, kind of going back to nabs and your programs, I know you've mentioned fishing, hunting, um, I understand you even do like some mushroom picking and, and some other unique uh, <laughs> things as well. If you want to get into some of those too. Sure. Yeah. We did a mushroom picking trip. Uh, I want to say it was not this last September of last year, but the year before, um, with the mycological society, it's a group of people here that know what they're looking at when they're looking at mushrooms. Cause let's face it, blind folks shouldn't go pick mushrooms <laughs> unless you know exactly what you're doing. <laughs> so well, there was only about six of us on this little trip that we put together. And it was amazing to see and hear people talk about, you know, okay, so I smell this out of this mushroom. So one of the gentlemen said he kind of smelled kind of a woody smell out of i don't remember the type of mushroom but i smelled the same mushroom and it smelled like black licorice to me so everybody's smelling something different which i found very very intriguing yeah for sure and they were telling us about different mushrooms and you know what you can do with them which ones to pick at what time up here in the pacific northwest i believe they're chanterelle mushrooms um, they grow everywhere people love them up here and they're pretty expensive to buy. That's what we were on the hunt for, but we learned so much about other mushrooms and the different fungi that would grow on trees or down to logs. You know, you think, Oh, it's so sad. Some trees fell down, whatever that all goes back into the earth and the mushrooms help with that. And, you know, it's just very cool to get to know nature on a kind of a biological level, if you will. And really, Watching the folks that came from the Mycological Society, they were having a blast explaining all of this stuff to us because we were full of so many different questions about, well, what can this mushroom do? Can you eat this? You know, is it medicinal? Can you do this with it? Um, and the way people felt things, and they, of course, made sure that we weren't touching anything nasty. Right. You know, we have nettles and some poison ivy and oak and sumac and stuff up here that you know could make you not feel so great <laughs> but they were very much in tune with what we were doing and also very much taken back by the interest that the people that went on this trip really had in what they were talking about because it's something different that none of us that have gone ever have done you know exactly yep and such a unique experience for everybody you know like you said the the participants in the organization as well as those you know helping out and, and just the whole group absolutely absolutely and one of the things that lance and myself and some of the other folks that help run nabs you know when we have people go out on adventures and go hunting or fishing or whatever the adventure might be it's never about us that run the nonprofit. it's never about us getting anything out of it. Every dollar down to the penny goes back right into the nonprofit. Nobody collects any paycheck on this. This is all volunteer work. Everything that people donate and that people, you know, we've had weapons bought and donated to us. We have people that have donated some camouflage, you know, all kinds of stuff, boots, hunting boots. We never take 
anything for granted that we get from anybody because it all goes back directly to our members. So we try to push the things that we get from everybody onto the members, if that makes sense. You know, we don't, we're not in it for us. We're in it for them. Right. Truly giving back and, and making a difference to the members that, that want to be involved. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. The way Lance explained it to me is, so he, I, I told you a little earlier, he, he came up with the idea for NABs out of necessity and maybe I can get him on the show sometime and you can talk to him. He went on a hundred interviews after he went blind and he had a very, very employable resume. Hmm. Um, he, and I won't get into too much of what happened, but he had a very good resume that anybody would hire him, you know, in an instant, if he wasn't blind. And I, I know that sounds very blunt. And some people that hear this may not go, Oh, that's not true. You know, yes, it is because we've lived it. We live it every day. The blind folks, the blind community lives it every day, Sure, you know, and that's not getting off track here, but that's something that I'm, I really want to change. Uh, but Lance did a hundred interviews and he went to this food bank just to get out of the house. He went to a food bank in his local area and wanted to just volunteer his time. And the person that was running the food bank, I, I the manager, I guess you call it. Um, he looked at Lance and he said, I can't use you here. I don't want you here. Go back home. Mm. And that was for a volunteer position. Lance even, and he'll tell you, he even told people, I'll work for free for six months so you can see that I'll do the job. I just want to work. I just want to be doing something. So, you know, that's kind of a hard pill to swallow for a lot of people. And so Lance, out of necessity, created the North American Association of Blind Sportsmen. He had a pretty tragic thing happen to him, and I'm not going to get into that, um, but it, the tragedy caused him to go blind in an instant. Hmm. Um, so he didn't know what to do with his life. And I'm not going to lie to you. I didn't know what to do with my life either until Lance came along and got me back involved with being outside and being around like-minded people. It does so much for your soul and your psyche, but he lost his, his friends group. You know, when he went blind, he's got one friend that stuck around his name's Rob and more often than not, I hear of people talking about things like this where their friends group has kind of dissipated or they don't think that they can go out and hang out and do the things that they want to do. But Lance, uh, out of necessity, started this and broadcast it to a bunch of people at the OTC and got a lot of people that said they wanted to join. And I won't lie to you. I was one of those people. Oh, I'm going to join. I'm going to join. I'm going to join. And our joining fee currently is twenty five dollars for a lifetime membership, which is nothing, but you have to put a value on something for people to take it seriously. For sure. And we want people that want to be there. We don't want people just to go from, you know, program to program to program because they're going to get given things. And that's their comp. This is a, if you want to be coddled and you want to be, have somebody do things for you, this is not the group for you. Uh, I'll be very bluntly honest about that because we don't do that. You know, um, we are all about building up your confidence, building up your independence and building up the things that you can use in your life to conquer whatever mountain you might be facing. Right. Right. Very well said. Thank you. Thank you. It's, I use these weird analogies and people say it all the time. You use all this weird stuff. You put it in such a weird way, but it's, 
in my head, it makes sense. It may not sound right all the time when it comes out, but it sounds good in my head, you know? <laughs> well, yeah, and I, I think it sounds, you know, it speaks to everybody, no matter their background, education, you know, like you said, putting things simply, I think you reach a bigger audience that way. Well, yeah. And I mean, we've all done it where we've reached a molehill in our life, but we've turned it into a mountain. I mean, everybody's done that at one point or another. And so it doesn't matter what the issue is. We can help you build the confidence within yourself. We're not going to do it for you, but you can, we can help build the confidence within yourself and the abilities to go back home from your adventure and go, all right, so I got to do X, Y, and Z. Let's get that done. I can do this. That's what we want people to get out of going on adventures with us, you know, is to change their life when they get home. Right. Yep. And just a few other quickies here before we do wrap up. Uh, I, I definitely wanted to ask about adaptations and, you know, for example, hunting. I'm sure people listening who've never tried it, you know, are wondering how does a blind person actually hunt? What kind of adaptations does your organization provide and support for that individual? Yeah, sure. No problem. Um, I'll actually go into the story of my hunt. Sure. So I have taken my first deer when I went blind, I would have been blind for, well, that was 2019. So I don't know. I went, I've been blind for a couple of years at the time that I shot my first deer and I was 184 yards away from that animal. Mm. Um, we use these, we use a regular scope, a couple of different ones. There's different scopes that we use. One of them has a three by four or a four by four screen, like an LCD screen on it. Um, that's what I was using. And I had a guide right next to me. So he tells you in your ear, you know, left, right, up, down, fire. So I, I got to pull the trigger and take the animal myself, which is a huge accomplishment. Absolutely. Yeah. And I got to feed my family for an entire year on food that I know has no hormones, no whatever's that they put in it to make it look pretty, you know, yep. um, Again, a very plain speaking, <laughs> I, it's, I was watching that animal eat the food that he ate on a daily basis. He came from, I believe it was an alfalfa field, came across where we were at <clears throat> and I watched him. I laid prone, which is laying flat on the ground for an hour before I, I got to pull the trigger on this animal. He had seven does, which is a female deer. He had seven does with him. And so they were kind of my guide had said, um, he said, when the sun hits him, cause we were out there before sunup. So he said, when the sun hits him, he's going to get up. Hmm. You know, um, that's one thing we won't do. We will not shoot an animal while it's laying down. That's not uh, fair. It's not ethical. It doesn't give the animal a chance to, you know, evade. Sure. So, because, and again, this isn't something that's going to be done for you. This is something that, uh, you're going to do on your own. So you want it to be as fair as possible. <clears throat> And he wasn't kidding. That animal, when, as soon as the sun hit him, he stood up, he kind of raised up his back leg and itched near his ear. And um, at that point, he said, you're on target, fire. And I fired and that deer dropped. And I say it just like this in the TV show, a wave of emotions came over me like I wouldn't, I can't describe it because it's, I don't know how to, hmm. you know, it was excitement and, uh, amazement and a little bit of sad, you know, you took a life. That's not something we look at lightly, For you know, sure. yep. um, but 
I took that life knowing that I am going to support life in my family for a year or more going on. I cried when it happened. I did not know that when I was taking that shot, we were far enough away and the wind was in our favor. There was people from the camp. This camp had four blind people in it and then eight other sighted folks and then plus the guides. So it was a big deer camp hmm. and it's all, it was all inclusive. The blind folks weren't separated or segregated from anybody. It, it was all inclusive. We hung out with the sighted people and we changed lives that week. I a hundred percent believe that at this camp, all four blind folks got their deer, all four of them. Wow. Yeah. And one of the, one of the guys that was up there, this kid, he, uh, he flew in from Daytona beach, Florida. We, we handle all the flights. We handle food, your room and board. We handle all of that stuff. You don't have to pay for any of it. That's big. It, it is big. And what we do ask that, you know, you do some volunteer work and help out with the organization and help move it forward. You know, uh, it's also very difficult when you call people and say, you know, Hey, you get to go on this hunt and then it comes time to do it. And a week before it's time, some people will cancel. And that makes it very difficult for us. Sure. So we're working on ways to change that. Uh, but I tell you what, getting to call somebody and having that emotion on their end of the phone that they get to go on a hunt that they signed up for is crazy. That is the craziest feeling. Like you can hear the big smile through the phone, <laughs> you know, and of course, in turn, you're smiling and happy and, you know, it's an all around good thing. And we do not ever guarantee that you're going to get a deer because it's hunting. It's not, it's not high fence hunting, which it's not on a ranch or it's not, um, you know, in somebody's backyard, this is out in the Hills and the mountains and we're hunting. And if you don't get it, you don't get it, you know? Yep. Um, but taking the animal is only a small part of what that experience is all about. You know, it's getting out with other like-minded folks and getting to be around people that are really seeing what life can really be like, because you connect with people on, how do I say it? You connect with people on such a raw level when you're hunting. I mean, it's you and your guide. And we all had camera guys with us uh, because everything was filmed for the TV show. So there's th you three guys and you get to know people and you get to connect with them on such a raw level. You know, uh, it's just, it's unbelievable that I can be involved with something like this and get the, I like to say that I feel a little bit selfish because I get enjoyment out of taking these folks out on their adventures and watching them light up. You know, it's so fulfilling for me, you know, that I, I don't know. I, I can't imagine myself doing anything else. Right. Wow. That's, that's really remarkable. Uh, so before we go here, I did want to give you the chance to, to give out your email address, any other contact info for NABs, if people are interested in getting involved. Sure. Um, our phone number, first of all, is 253 four three two six three six nine again that number is two five three four three two six three six nine uh you can find our website is www.nabs that's spelled n a a b s dot org so nabs.org is our website 
And I have an email that's currently being worked on. It's down at the moment, but I will get all my emails. So please, if you're interested, email me at it's my email is Tom T O M at nabs spelled the same way dot org tom at nabs.org or you can send a general email at info at nabs.org and that'll go directly to the you know community inbox gotcha yeah and everybody everything you guys want to see and learn about nabs and what we are and, and what we do and how it can change your life it's definitely changed mine and go to our website uh, our story is there. Um, we sell things like uh, we have T-shirts. We sell our own brand of coffee. We have coffee cups. We have stickers that say, I support NABS. Hmm. And we do all of this stuff. Everything that we put on the website, all the money that's sold, everything that's sold goes directly back into the nonprofit. I said that again, but I can't stress it enough. We do not take a paycheck from this. This is, all goes directly into sending a blind person on an adventure somewhere in the country no matter what their financial status must might be. Wow. Yeah. Very cool. And I, I definitely applaud you and the organization and for all the amazing work that you guys do. And, you know, I'm sure when, when COVID hopefully kind of improves and, and things are, you know, kind of that new normal, so to speak, uh, you guys will be doing even more stuff. We have six hunts coming up in October. Um, you know, we're still trying to do what we can with COVID. Of course, we have restrictions we need to follow, but sure. We're pushing forward. It's just a little bit slow right now. Um, but NABS is is going nowhere but up. You know, we are this 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 nonprofit will never go away. We're gonna be here forever trying to help the blind brothers and sisters of you know this continent. I don't wanna just say the nation, you know, because we have people that wanna join from all over. Anything we can do to help a blind brother and sister out, I mean, that is what we are all about, you know. And you guys only heard a bit about my life and how NABS has changed my life and what I do. Um, I'll talk to Lance, see if I can get him, give him your contact info and get him on the show. And um, I think it would benefit everybody, listeners and you alike that uh, would love to hear his backstory and how he came to be the person he is now, you know? Um, Absolutely. I would love to get as many people involved as I can. We, are looking to grow our membership base. And we are always looking for volunteers as well. You know, if family members of anybody who's listening, or if you're listening and you want to volunteer, uh, just give us a buzz on the telephone or send us an email. We can, we can make that happen. You know, we need volunteers all over the country. Sure thing. Awesome. And I'll definitely include all the contact info and links uh, in the show notes for this episode. So everyone can easily access those as well that way. And again, uh, we've been visiting with Tom Fisher of the North American Association of Blind Sportsmen. And Tom, cannot thank you enough for your time, your perspective, and uh, for your willingness to join me here on the podcast. Oh, man, I really appreciate being here. And uh, I hope to do it again. You know, this was awesome. I love getting to share the wealth about what I do and how we can help the blind individuals of our country get better awesome absolutely Alrighty, thanks so much once again be sure to follow the eyes free sports podcast at facebook.com slash eyes free sports and on twitter at eyes free sports 